Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome back to Learning Science Season here on the Exam Study Experts podcast. Are you a visual learner? Now, before I get any angry letters from my fellow psychologists and any educators who understand the science of learning, I should just say that was a little bit of a trick question. There's this very famous idea that some of us are visual learners, which means that we learn best via pictures, whereas others are auditory learners and need to hear information in order to learn it. And there are others still that are perhaps kinesthetic learners, and that means they need to move or see videos or uh, structures to remember things. This may be a really famous idea, this idea of different learning styles, but it's just not true. It's perhaps one of the most widely talked about of all the myths about learning and the brain. By the way, if you want to learn more about this and other similar myths, you might want to check out the little quiz I've made on the subject. You can search in Google or your preferred search engine for exam study expert quiz, and the quiz should pop up for you as the first hit. And you can challenge yourself to see how many truths or myths you can spot and identify correctly. But having said all of that, it may not be true that some of us are visual learners and some are not, but there's certainly a lot of truth in the idea that learning visually can help all of us. So today, we're going to be understanding more about the science of learning visually, organising information visually and spatially, and how all that can help us to learn faster and remember more. You may remember a couple of episodes ago hearing Dr. Yana Weinstein-Jones talking to us about six learning strategies that are well supported by modern psychology research. Well, one of these strategies was dual coding, the power of combining words and pictures. The power of learning visually, including using this dual coding technique, as well as organising information clearly in a visual structure, can be really handy when it comes to getting our heads around ideas, especially more complex concepts, and to committing all that knowledge to memory. Using visuals in learning, then, is a really fascinating area, but as I've said, often widely misunderstood. So, If you're wanting to know more about the theory of what works and really how to apply it in practice to level up your own learning, there's really only one name that comes to mind. And that is ex-headmaster, serial author and learning scientist illustrator Oliver Cavaglioli. And I'm very happy to say that the man himself is here on the show with me today. Oliver, a very warm welcome. Would you introduce yourself and tell us a little of what you do? I'm an information designer. I used to be a head teacher of a special school for a decade um, and then a trainer and author. But when I looked to see what I did, which is often to translate research and text heavy books and articles into somewhat more compelling visuals, I realized that although the visual aspect is what people notice, what I'm doing is fundamentally looking at information and, and reshaping it. And when I mentioned this at the beginning of my courses, and then I declare uh, to their amusement that they too are uh, information designers pretty soon during the course of the day they realize actually yes that is what teachers do they don't give a diet of straight information that that teachers find they carve it chunk it sequence it they're really designing the information for best 
um, access and understanding. That's a really interesting way of describing it. What sort of first sparked your interest in information design or, or kind of visual presentation of information? Well, my father was an architect. And if you've ever been around architects, particularly of a certain generation, nowadays architects are just part of a team. But in my father's generation, they were gods and they could declare how people should live. And so throughout my childhood, I had this informal education, which is receiving his opinion about the taste of napkins and chairs and my trousers and that painting and that advert and everything. Everything designed, and he had an opinion about everything, which was a really wonderful way. It was tiresome. You know, it was so tiresome, I decided not to go into the design world. And then um, I was a very early user of an Apple Mac back in 1989. And one of the books that explained how to use it was by someone called Richard Saul Werman, who was a self-declared information architect. And then he pretty much started a whole industry. So, for example, in education at the moment, we're talking a lot about knowledge curriculum, but no one seems to be yet interested in what is knowledge and how do you structure it? You know, we talk about knowledge as if it comes together in an ethereal, natural format. But it's humans who shape it. And it's that shaping of information into knowledge, which I, I just find fascinating. One thing I wanted to, to, to ask about uh, in, a, in a bit of detail was the subject of, of one of your books, Dual Coding, perhaps by way of kind of segue in, into that. I, I know you do a really nice explanation of the model of learning, so from attention into working memory, consolidation into long-term memory, and then then recall. Perhaps you just sort of talk us through that model briefly by way of kind of theoretical background, I suppose, to, to some of the things we might be talking about in a minute. I think we often forget, even in learning circles, that we have developed evolutionary in terms of our psychology. So it's only a short period of time that we've been wearing clothes inside buildings and do all these sophisticated things. Well, we developed ourselves through our survival in order to notice things that happen really quickly. We notice movement because movement is potential danger. By being able to focus on movement, by definition, it means we don't focus on many, 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 many other things. So one aspect of human that we need to bear in mind when we're looking at learning is that we don't notice a lot of things. It's the not noticing of a lot of things and not remembering a lot of things that allows us to survive. Otherwise, we'd be overloaded with information. So attention is absolutely crucial. There's almost no learning without attention. Attention, organising and recall pretty much captures learning. So we're going to learn only that which we pay attention to. And that which we pay attention to, we hold in our working memory. And working memory is our awareness or even our consciousness, what we're aware of now. So, you know, our awareness and consciousness is fleeting and it's not permanent, it's transient. And in that transience, we can only hold on to a little amount of information. Now, back in 1956, George Miller came up with this phrase, um, the magic number seven. And what did he mean by, what was he meaning when he said seven? We can hold about seven, potentially nine bits of information. But what no one ever focused on or remembered or explained was that these bits of information are simple digits or really short, simple words. When we're dealing with concepts, and you know, a concept doesn't need to be complex, but it is con concept. It's more like four plus or minus one. As a teacher, think of the children in front of you, the students, whatever, whatever age they are. They have four slots in their head. Fill those four slots up and you're in trouble because you always need to have at least one slot free to process the other material. 
that's for children who are nearly adults who are very good at the academic game. So when you're dealing with children who are younger, who aren't academically fluent, you're talking about one or two slots. I often use the analogy of a garage. You imagine a garage has got a thousand items in it. If in your garage you removed all cupboards, shelves, trays, boxes, bottles, you would find it very, very tedious to find anything. And you would give up pretty soon. And so pretty much with our memory, we organise things like we organise things in the world. We put things together that go together. So you tend to put all electrical items and do-it-yourself items together. So that's the organising part. And then because it's organised and we can find it, in the retrieval part, remembering it, that's more likely to happen. Mm-hmm. And, of course, much stuff gets gets lost. And forgetting is very crucial. There was a famous Russian in the 1930s who had the curse of never being able to forget anything. And so his life was unbearable. So we need to forget things. Where dual coding comes in is this process of learning something, psychologists term encoding, encoding. Well, dual coding is double encoding. And so we get information in through our attention. So this is a, this is a new item being admitted to the garage, so yes, to speak. Indeed. And they come in through two different entrances. So there are two channels. There's a verbal and a visual channel. They work separately. They can work simultaneously. And also, and here's the dual coding part, is that if the verbal and visual channel are inputting the same meaning. So if we're going to learn uh, vocabulary in French, and we're going to have the word cat, we have the word chat, and then image, they have associative connections. In other words, they link up, they mean something together. And so when we have encoding, which is to say learning, we learn it in two formats. And Professor Paul Kirshner calls that double-barreled learning because it leaves a double memory trace. And hence, at the end of the cycle, the retrieval cycle, you have a double chance of it being retrieved because it could be triggered either and word or, or image. And that's dual coding theory. And as I tell people on my course after about 20 minutes, I could go home now because that's dual coding theory. <laughs> Done. Images allow you to do parallel processing, which is kind of a term that we know from computing now. So you can do more things at one time. You can zoom into a detail in relation to the big big picture. Mm -hmm. Larkin and Simon, two psychologists in 87, did these series of tests with university undergraduates in which half of them were given text-only explanation of a concept in physics. The other group were given um, a diagram. They used explanations as well, but they had a diagram as well to support it and tested on their speed and accuracy of their understanding. Those with a diagram overwhelmingly and repeatedly scored more highly than those with only the text. And the reason they gave was that diagrams are more computationally efficient, and so they have computational advantage. And this is just a psychological term. If you were to ask on a man on the street or a woman on the street, they'd say, or, or, or a child in a school, they'd say, oh, it's easier to suss out. You can see to understand. One of the things uh, I wanted to ask, because we do have we have lots of student listeners as well as teachers, when I'm kind of talking to, to students about the science of learning and all the good stuff that modern cognitive psychology recommends for their studies and their exam preparation, it's 
not straightforward, but it's relatively accessible to kind of talk about retrieval practice and how you want to test yourself, use flashcards, that sort of thing. You know, space your studies out, so kind of revisit that at, at intervals, do your spaced learning. One of the areas that starts to run into difficulties is when you get sort of past space retrieval practice and into things like dual coding, where it's perhaps not immediately obvious for lots of students, well, okay, this this theory is all very well, but how do I apply this to my to my exam revision? You know, perhaps I'm, I'm no good at art, I can't draw, you know, what am I supposed to do with all this? I wonder if you might be able to kind of speak to that, you know, so any kind of practical ideas for how students might be able to apply dual coding theory in their exam revision? Yes. I'm going to start with teachers and the use of knowledge organisers in which they, sometimes under initial difficulty, they're able to identify the key component parts. So a knowledge organiser being a, a sort of perhaps a one-sheet summary of a... Basically, they're lists. They're lists of, of key parts. And that makes a student's job far easier in knowing what's important and what I can use for my flashcards and my retrieval practice which is useful. The problem is the word knowledge organiser. It doesn't really do much organising. It's just a bunch of lists. Mm. So I still find them very useful, but they are insufficient in the sense that I've likened them to ingredients. So you can't cook without the ingredients. So we need to learn the ingredients off by heart. But the exam doesn't ask you just to regurgitate lists. Some parts do. But other parts ask you to do the equivalent of a recipe, which is to say, get certain parts of the ingredients and mix them together and relate them and connect them. So knowledge organisers and and their retrieval through uh, space practice and, and all the other techniques are essential because you need to learn stuff off by heart. But it's insufficient because it doesn't link them together. So here's just one technique that you could students could use. Create a graphic organiser, which is another word for diagram. You don't need to spend any time drawing. Because basically, we call them a visual and they call them an organiser, but they're only words. But they're words that are organised in a non-linear format. And there are many types of them. So if you're dealing something that's a, a chemical or a geographic process or history, then you do a timeline. Mm-hmm or variation of a flowchart, which could elaborate different aspects. And it could include things like yes, no, what if. If you're looking at defining something, what the nature of a revolution or a particular revolution, then you would then group things together. In the same way at a garage, you wouldn't put your decorating things with electricity things. You group things together. So you would have main branches, and then you would have a word for the main branch, and then the branches were split up into other parts. So you might go decorating, then you say, well, there's the preparation, there's the painting, there's the whatever. So you branch things off. So creating it itself is really powerful. So here's the really significant part, and I'll I'll go back and explain and validate some of it in terms of evidence later, but let me explain it first of all. This is for a student on their own. You create it, and then find someone who will listen to you. <laughs> I don't know who that might be, your neighbour, your mother, your auntie, or whoever. Sure. And then with the diagram in front of you so both can see, put the index finger of the hand that you write with and place it on the middle of the map. And then you, your map will, be, will consist of keywords. Give yourself a discipline and say for every keyword, I need to have elaborate that notion into at least two or three sentences. So I want to create a narrative, an explanation, so my partner really understands. So imagine your partner is going to be tested. So you really have a commitment to them understanding. So forget yourself, 
just think about your partner understanding. So someone who's naive, who doesn't know very well, may be quite useful. And then as you elaborate the point of that keyword, move your finger and actually physically trace the line. Not with a pen, not with gloves or not hovering above, but make a real physical contact throughout. Mm. And then you will go through the whole map. And also point out cross-branch references. Then thank your partner, hide your piece of paper away, get a clean sheet of paper and put your finger without the pen in the middle of the paper and just realise that try and recreate the image which was in front of your eyes. And you will, to a great extent, be able to do that. Imagine yourself putting on a tape recorder or other means by which you replay the explanation you just gave to your your listener. And also move your hand in the shape that the diagram formed and start speaking. Pick up the pen and you will be able to redraw that map, that diagram, to a phenomenal 100% improve. Then, with the same principles we apply to other forms of recall, do it at a later date, maybe half a day later, and then two days later, and then a week later, whatever loop you find works for you. And why that works is that the non-linear arrangement of the diagram is the closest we have to the structure of your schema. So in our heads, when psychologists depict a schema and schema is your garage or more than your garages are garages of garages of how you understand things yeah hyper interconnected organization they never ever depict them as a bunch of sentences apart from the odd poem you might recite off by heart everything they always draw them as dots and a non-linear web so the diagram is a perfect fit and so is more easily assimilated and accommodated into your schema. The other thing, of course, is that you have exerted enormous amount of cognitive effort. One, in creating the map, it's yours and yours only. So you have what's called the generative effect. You've been creating meaning through your organization. And at this point, I want to say, I want you to consider organizing as not being a secretarial task. Organizing is meaning making. They're almost the same thing spelt differently. And then additionally, you had the cognitive effort of explaining to somebody else. And there's decades of research showing that peer explanation is highly effective, putting it all back into your own words. And the effort of elaborating, so you had a lot of effort by all these ideas, condensing them into keywords and and arranging them, connecting them. Now you've got even more cognitive effort in elaborating those keywords with your meaning. So it's meaningful to somebody else because you have an audience, which is the discipline. Yeah, if you didn't have a partner, you go, oh, yeah, 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 I've got that. Yeah, yeah. Because we kid ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and this is the additional bit, and John Sweller has now included this in cognitive load theory, your tracing is what's called embodied cognition. So whilst your working memory is limited and got like these four chunks, you can, so to speak, outsource some of the work of collecting and collating information with your body. And so your body will remember the shape of the of the diagram. And that isn't at the expense of your cognitive working memory. It's in addition to. So given that psychologists say your working memory is probably the single biggest factor that will determine and limit the degree of learning you engage in, if you now have a way in which you have a hack, you have a cognitive hack to increase 
the, the capacity of working memory by outsourcing additional work to your body, it's remarkably effective. Plus the dual coding part of image and a word, put that all together and the effect is just remarkable. So you can do your normal retrieval practice and this puts it all together. This is the real test. Do all the ingredients merge together meaningfully and you want to think of like a, a meal, a, something that you're baking. It's the meaningful and effective merging of those individual elements together to create a product. Well, you'll need to be writing things in your essay so you're convincing the examiner that what you're saying is you've understood and you've understand the key concepts through your explanation. That is equivalent to baking. You're putting them together into a coherent, meaningful argument. Yeah, and that's that's absolutely fascinating, uh, Oliver. I, I remember you know, 90s and early 2000s and uh, mind maps were all the rage back then. And I and many of my peers spent many a long afternoon coming up to exams, sort of drawing these elaborate mind maps, beautifully drawn little pictures in the middle because that was what you had to do <laughs> coloring it in you know all sorts of things and then it would get put in a drawer and never used again or maybe put on the wall um if you're lucky oh, okay. can i remind you of that wonderful quote please visuals ignored don't teach absolutely and so kind of what i love about your kind of advice there is you're you're sort of putting the emphasis very much on using that visual to organize the information and not necessarily wasting time kind of making it look beautiful <laughs> but then secondly you know what you then do with that so that's very much the first part of the process you then go on to to teach it your sort of technique with the with the finger hacking your working memory uh, to increase capacity the benefits of teaching it to someone else and then you recall it for yourself so you're doing some retrieval practice uh, and then repeating that that retrieval at a later date, so to kind of working in some spacing. So you know, a very you know, very very sort of powerful powerful system. Yes, you spend a lot of effort creating those maps, and then it's such a pity they all got wasted. Of course, the other thing in explaining to your partner, you're practicing. That's to say, you're rehearsing, you're writing. Yeah. Finding finding ways to sort of explain things yes. and uh, that, that might ultimately become sentence structures and, and so forth that you adapt uh, and use in your using your essay so if your partner if you invite your partner end stage to question and quiz you why is that doesn't that belong to so-and-so that becomes even more effective little elaborative interrogation there as well indeed that is the term one other thing i just wanted to ask you about i know you, you've sort of obviously got extensive experience leading a special school i'm just curious to get your thoughts on the kind of relevance and application of the kind of wealth of techniques we've been talking about visualizing data for the students who might otherwise uh, struggle more than most with their learning. David Orzubel, a psychologist of the 1960s, introduced, pretty much formalized the use of graphic organizers. He also introduced the notion of an advanced organizer. This is gradually being reintroduced to the public by Professor Paul Kirshner. And what it is, is if I were to take you to a new town and you were a child, and I wanted you to remember everything about the town, I wouldn't just go, go down all the side streets and point out all the details. You'd soon be overwhelmed. Nor would I give you a map that was highly detailed. I would give you a simplified map, and we've seen these in tourist guides. I would show you the town square, the post office, the church, the football ground. And having these major landmarks means that when we encounter the details as we start entering the town, I would say, look at these details of these streets, notice the windows, where are we on the map? And then you would say, all oh, right, so I know that these sorts of streets are over here. So what we're doing, and it's a critical part of learning, we're linking the details with the big picture. Or as other people now say, we're zooming in, zooming out. 
So if teachers create a simplified diagram at the beginning of a topic, so a simplified, stylized one in which we give students an overview of where they're going. And then during the course of the journey, while you're discovering the details of the topic, point out and question where those details live. This doesn't take up much time. It doesn't distract the more able. The other aspect of such diagrams is they're not transient. Teachers' words disappear. So even if you give a really clear, precise and concise explanation, it disappears. There's also something called a very simple flowchart. So you might, in organising your, your lesson, think of there being perhaps four or five stages. At each stage, point out what the major stages are. And from that, add the details gradually. It's the same thing as the map, but this time it converts the map into time. So at any one stage, you could ask a student, where are we? Where about on our sequence are we? And so the two are really useful. So where does that detail live in terms of the map of the place? And the timeline tells you what have we, what have we studied, what are we studying next? And that reorients the mind. And for children who students who are more academically gifted, they naturally, by osmosis, are able to cognitively orient themselves. This just makes it explicit. Yeah. And for those students who think they do it naturally, but may be inaccurate or insufficient, it gives them a wake-up call. I was relatively academically comfortable at school. I went on to study at Natural Sciences at Cambridge, and um, some of that content I, I found very challenging at first. And I feel like my life as a learner at university level would have been made a heck of a lot easier <laughs> by by some of the some of the techniques you were just describing. Your professors they knew where they were going. Yeah. So it all seems obvious because they've been there several times. You forget how different it is when it's the first time. Absolutely, there is no path to follow. It's like you're tentatively putting a foot out and then pass somehow just there. It's always tentative absolutely, and fraught, therefore, with anxiety. Absolutely. I mean, the other side of anxiety is excitement, true, but um, accompanied more often with anxiety than excitement. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Oliver, thank you so much once again. You've shared an awful lot of incredible insights and uh, you know, very great for you giving up the time. In closing, I, I always conclude with the exam study expert time machine question uh, where I ask guests, you know, if you had the opportunity to, to step back in time and you bumped into yourself aged 16 or 17 years old and you were able to give him a little bit of advice uh, for the future, particularly as regards education, what would you say to him? I would say form stronger alliances with like-minded staff. You know, we had, in my day, we had just local teacher centres. They gradually disappeared and then there was nothing. I would say form alliances. So for the teacher nowadays, Twitter offers you that. You may feel, if you're not on Twitter, you're the only one. People kind of mock you for being nerdy and reading all those books. You think, oh, perhaps I'm wasting my time. Go on Twitter and you'll find thousands of people just like you and you'll learn so much from each other. So form alliances. That's great advice and, and a beautiful segue to, to my final question. So if people are wanting to, to follow you on Twitter, find out more about your works, uh, your published books, for example, where, where would you point them to? On Twitter, I live as at Ollie Cav, spelled O-L-I-C-A-V. And my website is called ollicav.com, 99% of which is free to download uh, as long as you follow the Creative Commons principles of not amending it or using it to sell or selling it directly. You can use everything I've got on there for you. Um, the book you mentioned was Dual Coding with Teachers. That's available from Amazon or its publisher, John Cat. The project I'm most engaged in now is I'm using all my design skills and I'm working with Tom Sherrington, 
and we created something called the teaching walkthroughs where working with nelson cowan's four plus or minus one we've broken teaching techniques that have been validated by evidence into five steps and uh, if you go to the walkthroughs.co.uk you'll see the book and the resources we have available so we're using the same principles for adults learning and a great reader is too i've i've read both and would highly recommend them <laughs> oliver thank you so much once again this is this has been very excellent thank you pleasure thank you well thank you again oliver for that fantastic discussion and i really do highly recommend you consult his published works if you'd like to know more especially if you are a teacher you can find links to his books as well as the other resources just mentioned in the show notes I do hope you've been enjoying this learning science season here on the Exam Study Expert podcast. So far, we've had that overview of six evidence-based learning strategies from the Learning Scientist's co-founder, Dr. Jana Weinstein-Jones. A couple of episodes ago, I took you deep on retrieval practice back in episode 46. And last time, Dr. Carolina Kupertetzel uh, was here to talk us through the theory of spaced learning and exactly how to apply it in your own studies for maximum results. If you've been enjoying this season, please do share it with your peers and classmates to help them benefit from it too. And if you're an educator, please do recommend us to your students to help them study smarter and stay on track, no matter what restrictions may be in place this year as a result of the COVID pandemic. But for now, thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with a seriously helpful conversation with interleaving expert Dr. Veronica Yan. She's going to be helping us wrap our heads around interleaving, which is a seriously handy but very underutilised learning strategy in my experience. I do hope you'll be able to join us then. In the meantime, thanks again for listening today. Study smart and stay safe. If you've got exams coming up, you can now get all of William's favourite tips and tricks to save you time and get you higher grades all in one handy cheat sheet. Grab your copy at examstudyexpert.com slash free tips. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.